Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry reform and advocacy. I'm your host, Vankivia Garner. Thank you for joining me today. So today we're going to be talking about the power of language. And um, really what this means is like understanding how the language that we use when we're interacting and uh, discussing justice-involved populations and how that can foster reentry outcomes and, you know, you know, when we're talking, language has a big uh, influence on, you know, how we view people and um, how they're able to move accordingly in life. So that's really what we're going to be talking about today, uh, different languages that we've used in the criminal justice system and how we can adopt more humanizing language uh, when we're talking about these populations. So with me is Dr. Brianna Beaupre, an assistant professor in the Department of Victim Studies at Sam Houston State University. Um, just to give you a little bit more insight on um, what Dr. Beaupre's research interests are, um, she kind of, she examines a lot of system involvement through a gendered and intersectional lens, um, also integrating, you know, the carceral system and the impact of incarceration on families. You've probably seen a uh, a lot of her literature in like the Justice Quarterly, uh, Criminal Justice and Behavior or Feminist Criminology um, articles, um, peer review articles. And, you know, she's been awarded a lot of different, you know, scholarships and teachings because of her work. So without further ado, I want to allow her to, you know, share any information that she has um, or any additional things that she wants to add before we get started in our conversation. Awesome. That was a very uh, nice introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, so I think you covered most of it. Um, I would just add that I'm a fourth year tenure track professor, uh, victim studies at Sam Houston State. It's actually the first and only department in the nation dedicated to victim studies, uh, which is super cool. And me being someone who studies uh, the carceral system, when I first applied, I was like, oh, I'm not exactly sure if I fit this area. Um, but when I applied, you know, it was emphasized that victimization and trauma often uh, predicates someone involved, someone's involvement in the system. And that's really what a lot of my work is about, is about how victimization, adversity and trauma lead people into the system and then how the carceral system ultimately exacerbates that trauma and harm. And so a lot of my work is about systemic trauma and how the carceral system contributes to PTSD and trauma, both among people who are incarcerated themselves and also their family members. Yes, uh, and you, you know, you mentioned this before, well, not on here yet, but you have a very, um, interesting perspective that you will talk about later throughout our conversation about carceral experiences um, and things like that. I've actually never heard of a victim studies uh, department either until I found the one at Sam Houston. So I do think that, you know, that's really great um, and things like that. So, you know, thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, we're going to jump right into like our conversation, um, you know, just talking about what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess like I'll start off with, this is a very new area to me as far as of like language. It's something that I really got interested in during my master's program. Um, I started looking at like identity and like stigma um, mm -hmm. and all the kind of underlying mechanisms that can go into stigmatization. And one of the things that I really uh, just, I guess like 
really got my attention was language. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm currently working on a research project now that has to do with language and um, assessing how language impacts um, attitudes and beliefs among students and, and how those attitudes and beliefs um, influence their behavior and their willingness to be involved with justice-involved populations. So I will say I've read quite a few of things that you have uh, written. And so um, um, I'm, and I'm really excited for you to be here to even talk about this because like it's a very interesting topic. So like I guess like can you talk to us a little bit about like set the foundation for us about you know just criminal labeling in general and like the I guess like what that is and like how it does influence reentry, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so, I mean, broadly, these labels often are uh, stemming from the system. You know, it's staff, it's people who are working in the criminal legal system who are calling people these terms. And often crime-focused labels, what uh, we talk about in our white paper, um, which I I can link to the podcast, but it was a a white paper by Dr. Avon Hart Johnson and I, we did it for the Prisoners Family Conference and we were tasked by the Advocacy and Action Coalition to kind of look into humanization through language. And Mm -hmm. that was because they really wanted to uh, focus on closing the empathy gap Mm -hmm. and building empathy for people who are system involved and also their families. So I'll be referring to that white paper um, throughout this and, and I'll link it. So basically crime focused labels are really minimizing a person's identity or who they are to their crime or their offense. And so there's certain terms that can be more dehumanizing or degrading than others. And so throughout my own research, um, which has interviewed women who have experience in the system, they were on community supervision in Oregon, I asked them specifically about, you know, these labels and how they made them feel, how they impacted their lives and their reentry process. And so that study was part of a larger project, my dissertation, that looked at how trauma and abuse uh, is, is pervasive throughout the system for women. And so through my interviews with those women, there were certain terms that were you know, put onto them by the state. And those terms were largely offender, inmate. Um, Those were the biggest ones that women talked about being, you know, especially dehumanizing and degrading. And so I I actually want to share one of the quotes um, from Sincerity. Mm -hmm. Um, So part of that process, it's, it's not even just the label itself, it's the whole process of when somebody is put into custody. Right. So they're basically stripped of their identity, Um, even down to their personal belongings, their clothing, everything is taken from them. Even, you know, the type of hairstyles they can wear or, or wearing makeup or anything, all of that is stripped away from them. And it's this very much dehumanizing process. And the language that is used is just one component of that. And so I'm looking at this quote by Sincerity. Um, And so she talked about um, how 
being referred to as a number instead of her name. So often when people are incarcerated, they're given what's called a back number or an ID number. And it's put, you know, on their, on their shirt or what they're wearing, their uniform, which is often, you know, not clothes that we would choose to wear in public. (laughs) It's the orange jumpsuit. It's tan jumpsuit. It's, you know, the prison blues. It's not necessarily things that we would like to wear and especially women, right? Like it's not, you know, the most uh, femme or flattering attire that, you know, women might choose to wear. And so what Sincerity said about being labeled, she said, it made me feel like I was less than a human, like I was a statistic instead of a person. I was just a number, but I'm not a number. I'm a human being with struggles. And so that for me is the key part of of crime-focused labels. It's when we're removing someone's humanity and replacing it with, this is who you are. You're an inmate, you're an offender, and that's all you are. And this is, you know, often used by staff. Um, And so it's just a way also for staff to kind of separate themselves from those incarcerated. So I'll I'll give a little background information. Um, I think might be helpful to contextualize. Um, So I've I've given lots of uh, tours of facilities with my students. I've brought them to uh, jails, prisons in Nevada and Kansas, and I've interacted with staff beyond that. And so one of the things that I've picked up on from staff when I've talked to them is that this training, this um, dehumanization is literally, you know, part of their training on how to be a correctional officer. Um, One former officer that is a close family friend of ours, he talks about, you know, the training was basically preparing them to treat these human beings in a way that they wouldn't normally treat human beings. And so part of that is that separation by referring to them as inmate number, blah, 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 or, you know, offender, it's easing that process to treat them in a way that is more punitive or inhumane, um, which really struck me. And I've had this former officer come to my classes and speak. And I mean, that, that was really telling to me that this is literally being trained to staff in a way to separate themselves from from the way that they're treating people on the inside. And so I'm trying to think the original question was about crime-focused labels. And basically it's just this process of dehumanization and removing who that person is instead of referring to them as their first and last name, it's just reducing them to a number and a label, inmate number blank. That's what they're referred to as. And so when we think about the reentry process, I mean, there's that literal process of getting used to being called your name again. Yeah. Um, so that that can actually be really jarring um, when you're being referred to as something else by staff, by people who are in authority. And then you're out in the world, you know, shifting back into that identity of being a person, of being your first and last name. It can be a, a process, but also there's those external factors, those barriers associated with a felony record, like access to um, to welfare. Um, so there's there's limits on housing and things that you can get through the state, um, like food and things like that. You may not have access with a criminal record. 
You definitely have limitations on employment, especially in states that require you to mark a box that you've been convicted of a felony. There's limitations on access to school, to college, um, if you have a record. And so even beyond the interpersonal barriers, there are all these external barriers that are associated with that felony record. And when you're referred to that, you know, that process, it, it builds that stigma, that othering, that you have done something wrong, you are no longer part of society. And yeah. even when you're re-entering, being called that language, being called a felon by the state, by someone in authority, makes that re-entry process even more difficult. Yes, for sure. So what I'm hearing, like, and just to kind of reel it all together really quick, is like, it seems like even our correction systems have adopted this culture of like, where this is normalized, like this type of derogatory language is just very normalized there. It's inputted in their training and it kind of has this us versus them love kind of feel to it. And then when these individuals try to come into their communities, it's translated into the communities as well, where you have not just even authority figures that are using this language, but you have neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you may even have family members that are, are using this language and, um, mm-hmm. and it kind of just like that, that causes a whole nother level of issues for somebody that's trying to transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a, there's a great article um, by Willis and colleagues that talks about, you know, rehabilitation and why would we refer to someone by something we don't want them to be? Um, mm-hmm. That like really stuck out to me. Like if we want somebody to be a human, to be a part of society, why do we keep referring to them as these labels? Yeah. And I think, and, and that's a great point because like the goal of, you know, the criminal justice system is in a sense, rehabilitation, mm-hmm. um, increased public safety. Yeah. Like it should be, but it's, it's like, you have these you have these policies and you have these ways of doing things that don't necessarily align with this goal of desistance. And I think like, for me, I think that's one of the biggest things of like, I have a big emphasis on, you know, trying to do research in desistance, but then you see this stuff and you're like, none of this is calculating or correlating with where we're trying to go. And I think language is like a big piece of it as well in a place where it may not have like the biggest impact. I'm not for sure, but it's a starting point. Yeah. So- and especially when like formerly incarcerated people feel strongly about this. So mm-hmm. I've um, had the privilege of going to the Free Her conference twice, um, and it's organized by women who have been incarcerated, and they feel very strongly about these words and terminology, and they actually prefer terms like system involved or system impacted Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, those labels, again, coming back to being called something by the state, it can be very triggering, And it can bring you back, you know, to that dehumanizing or derogatory state where you're being called that by staff and by the state. And so, you know, a lot of this, this work that I'm doing, you know, it's a small part of what I do. I do a lot more work on, you know, reforming other things, but language is one small part. And it's, you know, it's coming from system involved people telling me the harms that they've experienced, you know, being called those terms. But on the other hand, there 
there is, you know, people who could um, prefer those terms, right? So I actually interviewed a woman who's an activist um, for prison reform. She was at the Free Her Con Conference and she prefers the term prison survivor because mm -hmm. prison was such a big part of her life and surviving that experience was a huge part of her identity and who she is today. And so, you know, I, I do want to recognize on the flip side that some of these terms are, uh, can be preferred by people who have been involved in the system. And so, you know, it's not my place to say, you know, how yeah. a person who's been involved in the system should identify that is their space and their place. When I talk about crime-focused labels, it's more critiquing those terminology used by the state staff and also journalists and researchers who may not have that direct experience. Right. And I think that's a, a very interesting point that you bring up too, because I have seen both sides of like this internalization of a label where I've seen people you know the word felon triggers them so much it brings you know it causes so much distress and it causes so much pain but I also noticed like in my thesis that I've done I've asked um formerly incarcerated people what do you prefer to identify as yeah. and very surprisingly a lot of them would say things like ex-offender mm -hmm. or they would say a formerly incarcerated person or they would say something like prison survivor and I honestly at the time I didn't know what to make of that and I just was like so what are they taking ownership in this as like yeah. but I've, I guess I've seen it as more of like a like with this lady that you're talking about empowerment like this is a part of who I am of how I've you know a part of my journey Right. So I do think that is a very interesting perspective um, that I don't know a lot about. And it, yeah, it's just interesting to hear it that way as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I would highly recommend looking into the work of the ASC Division on Convict Criminology. Okay. Um, so they just released an article about uh, their name, Convict Criminology, and how, um, I guess a few years ago, there were some academics who were trying to pressure them to change the name. And so their article is really about, you know, what the name means to them, convict criminology, and the history of that being so important to their identity and their mm -hmm. activism. And so that's something, you know, beyond convict criminology, we know like the Me Too movement, we know people who've been victimized very strongly identify with the term survivor. And that mm -hmm. is like a really big part of their identity. Many of my students identify as survivors. And that's a big part of why they come into victim studies is to study it and to hopefully, you know, make policy changes with whatever career they go into. And so it can be very empowering and an important part of their identity. And so I think, you know, that's, that's a big part of person-centered. I don't want to, you know, jump, jump into the next part, but I think that is a big thing to consider when we're trying to be person-centered. Right. So I guess like what I'm hearing from you as well is like, it's not, it's not our job to like dictate what uh, a formerly incarcerated person or a justice involved person should identify with, but as like staff, as practitioners, um, and people who are going to be working with these populations mm -hmm. just to be mindful of yeah. the the bias that is associated with some of these harmful terms and how they can be internalized and 
the impact that we could have on somebody when we're working with this population is what it's very much what I'm hearing it's more so for mm-hmm. us um and you know they have the they are more than welcome to identify with whatever mm-hmm. um but we just need to be respectful uh, and mindful of those things Yes, exactly. And I can give some examples of some states have begun referring to people who are incarcerated as clients, Mm -hmm. as residents. Um, They they do use, you know, people related terms. And so that, you know, that has a different connotation than Mm -hmm. saying inmate number, blah, 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 go to your bunk. You know, it, it, it is, it feels different. It feels more rehabilitative and therapeutic. But again, it's something to keep in mind is that all of this is socially constructed, right? right. And, and like the stigma put onto those labels are done through the state, through society. And so, you know, we could try to make these terms as politically correct as we want, but ultimately, you know, that stigma comes beyond the term itself. And so mm-hmm. those barriers and things we talked about earlier are really what we need to break down to break down you know, the harms of this language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think that like, you know, cause like the barriers are what we need to break down, but do you think language will have any influence on helping ba- break those barriers down? Cause I guess I'm just thinking in my mind of like um, language and the things that we say and the phrases that we use kind of inform a lot of the policies that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I, I guess it's just like this cycle of language leads to stigma and stigma leads to, you know, policies, blah, 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 this. Do you think like language can be a stepping stone into helping break some of these barriers? I do. I do think language can be a part of it. Um, there is some recent research that has looked at, you know, how people respond when you refer to someone as something like, for example, returning citizen versus uh, offender or, or I forget what exact crime focus label they used in comparison, but you know, there is some research to support that, but I think even beyond the language is involving people mm-hmm. who have been involved in the system in that policy reform process. That's what I do in my courses is I really engage people who have been in the system. I prioritize their narratives in the research that I give students. I prioritize it in the books they read. It's narratives from people who have been in the system. I think that is also a powerful way to humanize is to literally bring the humans to the table for the policy process. Yeah, and and ideally that would be the best thing because it's like mm-hmm. we in all reality don't know what their experiences are um, unless you've had an experience like that. I know I can't attest to that, but um, I do think like that is very important. And I I like the research that has come out recently about like perspective taking from returning citizens and formerly incarcerated because I feel like it just informs so much more than mm-hmm. us us that are not incarcerated just telling based off what we've seen um and things like that so yeah um and you mentioned person-centered language um so we're kind of transitioning here a little bit um well before we I guess before we transition into that is there anything that we're missing um that we haven't that we need to highlight first before we get into that conversation Um, I can talk a little bit about my background and the focus on families. I think that might tie in as well. 
Yes, because I yes, you do have an interesting lens of how you look at these things. So yes, talk talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so both my parents were incarcerated. Um, my dad was incarcerated until I was, let's see, I was graduating as an undergrad. So I was about 21, 22. Um, and so he was uh, in and out of prison my entire life from being six months old. Um, and he, his last sentence that he served 10 years, he was sentenced um, from nine to 29 years for a drug-related charge. And so I spent my whole childhood every weekend uh, visiting him in prison, pretty much. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that has definitely had a big impact on my life. Um, hearing him being called inmate number, you know, uh, having to write inmate number next to his name on every letter I would write to him. It's just like this constant reminder. And, you know, beyond the stigma that he felt, because obviously he felt it more so than me, like he was right. directly involved. Um, but there is that stigma that is put onto families as well. And that's a, a big piece of my research is looking at how secondary prisonization or the pains of imprisonment extend onto families. And uh, Dr. Megan Comfort's work is really excellent in this area about secondary prisonization and understanding you know, how visitation in particular wraps uh, people up into that system. So I can talk anecdotally, you know, when, when I would go visit my dad, you know, there were specific uh, procedures and policies and things that, that we had to go through that also made us feel dehumanized and sort mm -hmm. of detached. Um, there, there were you know, some staff that were really caring, really kind and great, there were some that were not so kind, caring and great. And so right. all of that, you know, passes on to families as well. And so that's been a big part of, you know, my work in this area is trying to understand how the stigma extends onto families as well and how we break down that stigma and improve things. Yeah. And, you know, the, I will say from my own experience, like I completely remember that as a kid, like writing my grandpa letters. And like you said, constantly having to write inmate, blah, 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 blah. And it's just like you, the family does. And I think at that time, clearly I didn't notice, but you do take on a stigma because of that experience. And um, yeah, just because of that experience and and, you know, it's it's hard for families. Um, and I guess I also didn't realize the breadth of stigmatization that a family takes on either. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been doing some research in like Todd Clear's work. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with yeah. that, but yeah. he has a lot of stuff about, you know, like how incarceration and these experiences impact families and their neighborhoods. And um, they really do take on a big toll of like a lot of turmoil from these experiences and I don't think that uh, we recognize that as much but I do thank you for sharing that um and you know I imagine there's a lot of people out here who had similar experiences and can attest to that as well oh yeah so recent research a national survey estimates that one in two adults have had a family member incarcerated so that's 45% of the U.S. population estimated has been impacted by incarceration. So it is huge. Um, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and which is why, like, you know, given those numbers, and I feel like I say this every time of like, when I hear those numbers, it just, 
it's like, how are we not dealing with this? Like, mm-hmm. how are we not uh, making this like a first priority um, and really, you know, trying to get on the ball of these things? Because when you hear something like 45%, that's 50% to me, yeah. <laughs> like basically. It's huge. And I think, you know, it's important because one, we know that there's a cycle, right? So if, if someone, if recent research has shown that uh, children with incarcerated parents are nearly two times as likely to become incarcerated themselves later on in life. Um, so that's huge. And trying to understand, you know, why that is and why there is this cycle is also a big part of my work and others. And also, you know, we know that maintaining family bonds is a key component to people's reentry and their yes. success in the community. Um, but often, you know, yeah, but the policies and procedures that are enacted by these facilities really hinder that process, you know, by charging families. Our family had to pay over a dollar per minute for phone calls. And, you know, there's there's travel associated barriers, you know, traveling out of state or or hours away, having to get a hotel room to meet, you know, you have to be there at 8 a.m. to get into visitation. So you have to, you know, leave at a certain time and be there. You know, if we if you work non-traditional hours, that's you're excluded from that. There's all these barriers uh, that are put up, you know, that counter what we would expect to support someone's successful reentry. Yeah. Yes. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And that yes. Oh, barriers. We could, <laughs> I'm telling you, we could talk about that forever. Um, yeah. but you know, going back to I guess this idea of like what we're here and talking about like person-centered language mm-hmm. and um things like that. Talk mm-hmm. to us a little bit about what is person-centered language. Cause I'm I'm not for sure if a lot of people even have even heard of that. Um, I mean, I know what it is, but can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, there's been, you know, different iterations thrown around uh, on the internet and uh, in in articles, and there's a distinction between person-first and person-centered. So person-first is uh, making sure that you're using the term person-first in the language that you refer to someone as. Um, and so this has come, you know, out of the work addressing people who are differently abled or have disabilities. You know, it's, it's about um, making sure that we're moving beyond identifying that person solely as their disability right. or their differences. Um, but for me, um, I'll give you my personal definition of what person-centered means. So for me, being person-centered means more than the language itself or adding person to terminology. For me personally, being person-centered is about centering humanity when we discuss the US carceral system and its impacts. So again, it's more than just using person when you refer to someone, Um, that is part of it. So for me personally, when I talk about people in the system, I say it that way. I try to use that terminology just because I've had too many people tell me, you know, the harms and the stigma, the dehumanization that comes from being called offender or uh, inmate in particular. Those are the two terms that I really, really try hard to avoid. Um, so I just try to say person who's been in the system. But for me, being person centered is trying to avoid labels altogether. When right. I can, I try to just say women. 
or I try to just say, instead of, you know, like juveniles, I try to just say kids or youth, you know, when I can. Um, and it's surprising. I thought it would be a lot harder than it is, uh, but, it, but it's not like, so it, you know, there's a lot of occasions where I don't have to say, you know, incarcerated or, or something like in the paragraph when I'm writing, you know, there's a way where I can frame it, you know, we're talking about prison and this is women, you know, and there's a way where I don't have to use those labels. And so that's really what it's about for me being person-centered and then also taking into account, like we talked about earlier, that some of those terms may be important and empowering to certain people. And so it's really important if you're talking to someone who's been involved in the system, ask them, you know, ask them their preference for what terminology they prefer. Um, so even if you're if you're working with families or people who are, you know, not directly involved, it's it's a good idea just to ask, you know, do you have a preference on the terminology we use in this paper? And that can go a really long way towards helping humanize and and really prioritizing the voices of people who have been involved in the system. And so to me, that's what person-centered means. It's going beyond, you know, just, just putting person in the language you use. It's viewing people as people. And at the end of the day, centering, you know, that their needs and, and their voices. Right. And, you know, I really like the idea of like avoiding labels, like just mm-hmm. all together. Yeah. Um, because I think one of the things that I find increasingly difficult um, is trying to keep up with the terminology yeah um and like you know trying to be mindful that you know I'm not offending anybody um Mm -hmm. so I'm like I'm going between okay justice involved populations or Mm -hmm. I'm going between formerly incarcerated um or person impacted by the criminal justice system I find that so challenging to try to like keep up with and then when you're in the moment and you're with somebody and you're discussing these things of like going through that in my head of making sure I'm using the same thing instead of just like thinking about forget the labels altogether yeah we're talking about women like you said we're talking about youth um so I really do like that idea and I'm you know as I'm sitting here thinking I'm like you know I have a presentation tomorrow about Mm. um justice involved women and you know treatment considerations and I'm like you should probably add that in there just avoid the labels Mm -hmm. you know normalize like that people have experiences like this and they don't have to be confined to some type of label of like oh justice involved women which I mean we can use that for sure Mm -hmm. um but you don't you don't necessarily have to do all that because I feel like that is so challenging for me Mm -hmm. um, of just trying to figure out okay what am I going to use I often use the word returning citizen yeah um and but I've also read stuff on where that's not the most appropriate word mm-hmm. and you know the harms of that and like the history of that word and I'm like okay so what do I use <laughs> what? So, yeah. so, what, so what do I use yeah and, yeah and I, I like this idea of you know just avoid the labels yes. yeah it is possible and you know going back to you mentioned returning citizen there's also been you know discussions of justice involved so uh the free her conference we had an open discussion about you know terminology and the women who have been incarcerated said they don't prefer justice involved because it's not a system of justice 
You know, they don't feel like justice has been served for them or, you know, other people who've been through the system, people who've been harmed. And so they try to avoid the term justice, too. So I think, you know, really, it comes back to what it means to be an ally. And I'm not yeah. saying like I'm like a model for allyship by any means. Of I, course, no. I am 100% learning uh, every day I learn and I am humbled by what I learn. Um, so it, it's definitely a process. But I think some key parts of that is being open-minded. Um, so being being open-minded that this is a fluid process and words and meaning will change. Um, also involving people with the direct experience. Um, that's also a key to this asking, you know, asking what the preferred terms are. And again, that can change. Yeah. And then, um, you know, if you do slip up, it, it's okay. You know, you can, you can apologize. You can say, like I actually just had a presentation a couple of weeks ago about victimization in prison. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was reading direct policies from Priya where it says inmates. And so I said inmate and I was like, oh, you know, uh, I, I try not to say inmate. I try really hard to be person centered and, and use, you know, different language, but it happens, right? Because it's so pervasive, it's written in the policies and the procedures. So you know, if, if you if you think you have done some harm or, or something, you know, it's OK to to apologize, to be humble. We all slip up. And I think at the end of the day, you know, it's just important to be open minded and, and try to be kind. And, you know, the ultimate goal we're trying to do is is reduce harm. That's you know, that's the biggest thing that we're trying to accomplish. Yes, for sure. And, you know, and it's very similar to, you know, just asking like pronouns, like that's a new mm -hmm. thing that we do. Um, I know, especially as like a emerging clinician, like mm -hmm. that, that's something that we, that we do you. And I think it's very similar to this, like you're saying of just asking people, what do they prefer? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and just kind of going along with that instead of assuming and um, those different type of things. And I like the way you phrase of like person-centered is more so like a way of being almost um, yeah. and not just like trying to use the language. Um, um, it's yeah. And it, it very much more aligns with this idea of these ideas of desistance and where we are trying to push the criminal justice system. So I really do appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, so I really, I really do appreciate that conversation about that. And, you know, before we get ready and like close out and things like that, um, I want to, is there anything else that you feel like we need to add to discuss like this person-centered language uh, that we've missed out on or that you feel like the audience really needs to um, understand to be able, you know, to when they're out there and they're interacting and discussing with these people that um, they need to be mindful of or be aware of? Yeah, I would just come back to at the end of the day that these are people, you know, they're, they're just like you and I, they have probably been through intense trauma and things throughout their life, you know, that has led them into the system. And I think taking a step back and trying to look at the person holistically is really what humanization is about. And again, language is one small part of that. Um, the more we can do to humanize people in the system, the better we are able to break down stigma and to break down that otherness. You know, that's mm -hmm. really the goal that we want. You know, we don't want this us versus them mentality. We don't want to be othering because that leads to isolation and that leads to 
you know, a lot of unwanted results. Um, so I actually teach a class on transformative justice, which is mm-hmm. all about um, how do we uh, reduce the harm that is caused by the criminal legal system? How do we how do we address harm and violence in the community so we don't have to rely on prisons and punishment? And that class has been, I mean, really transformative for me as a, as a professor, but also, you know, my students have really come up with these creative and important ideas for how to reduce secondary victimization and systemic trauma that comes from the system. So, yeah. So again, I think person-centered is, is being more than that and understanding, you know, the person for who they are holistically. Yeah. I think you summed that up very well. I, I would also like to say, I would love to take a class for transformative justice. Um, I can send you all the materials and stuff and the books that we read. It's been, it's been really great. I, it's a special topics class. So it's brand okay. new that I'm just developing. This is the first semester I've taught it, but it's been really, really amazing. And the students seem to really like it. Um, instead of like a traditional final I have mm-hmm. them create their own final project. They can do anything they want. Okay. Uh, so that has been really cool to just be like, you tell me what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's like transformative justice. It's more than the content. I'm trying to put it into the way I teach, like alternatives to traditional approaches. And what can we do when we think outside the box, when we go beyond you know, tradition and what we've always done, you know, right. what, what can we achieve when we think about different and new things? Right. I, yes, I really love that. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I would definitely love to like see that information and, you know, that course stuff. Cause I think, I think that's a, a good way to where we're trying to go uh, yeah. with the criminal justice system is trying to transform things um, and to get to where we need to be. So, yes, I really appreciate that. And Dr. Um, <clears throat> sorry, Dr. Bopri, I really do appreciate you coming on here, and, you know, sharing your expertise, um, you know, talking about these conversations. Um, like like I said, more life. We are really trying to get into the process of re-entry and I think one of the first ways of like trying to do that especially for our audience is understanding the language like that we've been using um and how it's harmful and you know what we can do ourselves um to be better and to be more mindful and be more um humanizing Mm -hmm. of you know these individuals and their experiences so I really do appreciate you for coming on and mm-hmm. you guys if you are interested in um, following Dr. Bopri on Twitter please do so I will make sure that her Twitter account is in the bottom of the description box and also while you're down there please push the subscribe button and then follow us on Instagram at more life the reentry podcast thank you mm-hmm.